Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, special guest host, Dr. Johnny Reese, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, we speak to the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. If you could just kind of tell me a little bit about how you came to research what you research today and the sort of paths that led you down there, because people know you as a ketosis researcher, but obviously you've gone far beyond that. Um, so just, yeah, a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and, uh, yeah, we'll kick off from there. Yeah. Well, um, my academic interests were really, uh, kind of spawned by my personal interests. So, um, uh, and in my undergrad was nutrition and I was very much interested in nutrition because of probably to be honest, like body composition alterations and my interest in fitness led me to nutrition and uh, as my academic uh, career started to evolve, I realized that the brain was really in the 1990s, it was like the decade of the brain. So I kind of redirected my focus on uh, neuroscience and physiology. And my mentor at the time was studying the neural control of autonomic regulation, how the brain controls our physiology. And in the process of doing that, we were looking at physiology under extreme environments, including hypoxia, what happens in the brain during hypoxia. And uh, I did a lot of research on the brain stem mechanisms associated with uh, physiological control under hypoxic conditions and you know extreme conditions. And I got very interested in diving and diving physiology. And that led me to do a postdoctoral fellowship that was funded by the Navy uh, to understand and to mitigate oxygen toxicity seizures, which is a limitation for Navy SEAL divers, but also a limitation for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is used for 14 different FDA approved applications. Yeah. And uh, so my research was really very fundamental, like studying cells in a dish to animal models to, you know, individual mitochondria. And then it has evolved to doing, you know, clinical trial research on subjects and then further evolved to actually me being a subject in uh, a NASA space analog mission, which was uh, the uh, NASA has a lot of funny acronyms. This yeah. is called NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operations or NEMO. And that was an amazing experience to live with and train with astronauts who, uh, who are some of them are bound to go to Mars, uh, but they have been on the space station and, and to be just part of their their astronaut training to be a a neuroscientist and a physiologist uh, that could actually do research to understand in these extreme environments, working with government organizations. But, so, yeah, yeah I mean, it's that's been fun. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that must you must have learned so much from that. And I mean, how many people have done yeah. anything anything like that? Right, not not that many. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing opportunity, and I never thought it would take me down that path. But my, uh, I think my skill set in diving, like advanced dive training, and also my academic background in neuroscience, and uh, and and also my wife too, because my wife was a dive master. She's got a PhD in neuroscience, wow. and then 
when you go on this mission, you need to have uh, people behind you in mission control. And my wife is very good operationally. So she handled like six different IRB protocols on physiological research, like something that I could never do. Impressive. So she, yeah. she allowed me to actually bring in a massive amount of research that was conducted on this mission. And then she impressed NASA so much that she was recruited in NEMO 23, which was an all-female mission. So we, we worked with NASA on two different space analog missions. And I think that was largely possible just because, you know, my expertise, but really my wife's expertise opened up our ability to actually do research on it. Because it's it's one thing to be an aquanaut to train with them, but it's another thing to be someone who's actually doing the research. That's like a whole nother skill set and paperwork and just, you know, IRB approvals and things like that. So it was an amazing experience experience to take my basic science research and have that evolve through animal research and then apply that to uh, human factors or operational research. And I mean, it's it's pretty cool and, and consequential in that this could eventually help people, as you said, going into, well, going into space, but potentially going to Mars, right? So some of the research yeah. we're doing would provide information for, for future for future missions, presumably. Yeah. And I don't want to make it sound like it's all of our research. We did pack a lot of research into that, but the main thing is actually for NASA to train on procedures, to train on different devices that they're using, and to really train the astronauts to basically function as a crew uh, in a very confined habitat that's under the water in an extreme environment. Like you can't pop up to the top yeah. uh, because you have to do like a 17 hour stage decompression. So yeah. it is very much like an extreme environment. You live and work at uh, several atmospheres of pressure and you do what's called an extravehicular activity or EVAs and things like that. And you follow the same timeline the same use the same apps the same procedures all the protocols are very similar to living in space so that was just like an amazing opportunity in and of itself but what you learn and also just being among astronauts who are just so sharp in what they do and such amazing humans uh that and i was able to also bring my students and my research associates down to isla Morada and then actually make uh, to bring my lab at the University of South Florida to take my students and, and make them part of it. And that was an amazing experience to do that. Yeah. I mean, and the, so what were the sort of main main kind of lessons you were able to learn or the, the information? What, what, did you, what, that, what did that kind of allow you to gather for, from that? Yeah, we looked at so many different things. Uh, some of it's published. Uh, a lot of it's not published yet, but we looked at uh, many different, we looked at strength, you know, we did like, you know, grip strength, we looked at body, body composition changes, uh, we looked at physiological changes like in blood flow, uh, we looked at uh, sleep, we used the aura rings to look at uh, how sleep changes in extreme environments, uh, we did heart rate variability, uh, we did... Um, Man, we looked at so many different things yeah. and some of it's published and some of it's not. So I can't talk too much about it, but things like how taste changes in these environments. Uh, I looked at the CO2 levels. We looked at cardiometabolic markers, uh, how things like uh, inflammatory markers change in extreme environments, how hormones change, how your metabolism changes. Uh, 
you know, a lot of different. And also my wife is a behavioral neuroscientist. So she studied cognition, reaction time, decision making. Uh, and there's a variety of tests that we can use for that. The NIH toolbox and then NASA has, you know, their own test for that. Yeah. Uh, so we would do these tests like when we wake up to look at like our cognitive function reaction time. And of course, astronauts are like off the scale, right? That's why they're astronauts. So you're yeah. like, when the data comes in, it's like, I, everything's blinded. So you're, I'm wondering like, wow, how do I compare it to the astronauts? But they're just like amazing. Uh, we had a, a mini DNA analyzer and sequencer. So we looked at the microbiomes of our skin, uh, of our gut. We collected, we got astronaut, <laughs> poop in our negative 80 degree freezer we haven't even analyzed yet since we collected that over several missions uh man we did every like i said it was like six irb protocols of, of research and a lot of it we haven't even published yet uh, some of it we have most of it we've analyzed but we're still writing it up uh, but it's 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 you know the crew is four crew members and then two habitat techs so it's like you got six people on two different missions and uh, so the sample size is relatively small, but the quality of research that you do on these missions is very uh, is very good, especially working with NASA, their their professionalism and their like, you know, their operating procedures and things like that make it surprisingly easy to conduct, you know, physiological research um, a lot, little bit. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork and protocols you have to follow. Um, but you can get some really great data in these extreme environments. I can imagine. I mean, especially with NASA, you're dealing with the kind of top of the top, right? In terms of, you know, intelligence and in terms of protocols, you'd, you'd imagine if they're sending people into space, that's uh, sort of yeah. thing that requires a, a lot of careful planning and uh, attention to detail. Yeah. So, I appreciate there's certain things that y you may not be able to talk about uh, relating to that, but are there any kind of takeaways for for how you do things you know in a, in a less extreme environment you know like here here on mm -hmm. earth in your sort of day-to-day -day, you know any kind of takeaways from that mission or that that you can share yeah absolutely so uh we you know in regards to eating and our our personal time like we had the liberty to to have flexibility on that like we didn't have to eat according to what nasa was telling us although they gave us space food right so i was on a ketogenic diet the idea was to everyone follow their normal diet so for me that was a ketogenic diet and uh and also i was eating uh probably just like two meals per day instead of like you know three or four meals and snacks and things like that uh and i also uh being in a state of physiological ketosis i think gives advantages in this in that environment in regards to uh you're you don't get hungry you can focus on your tasks and maintain cognitive function and um especially when you go outside of the habitat and you're working in the water uh when you go the dry habitat is under pressure so when you go in the water you're still under pressure but you're in a, in a wet habitat and and sometimes like you don't have access to food so but you're tethered to you have an umbilical cord <laughs> and then you can go off and venture all around and then there's people support divers that make sure your umbilical cord doesn't get tangled around in like the reef and things like that but you're working in a very extreme environment for hours and hours uh and even though the water's like in the 80s you tend to get like hypothermia uh okay. towards the and you'll shake and things like that 
So uh, I think from, you know, my perspective, some of the things that I learned that could be useful to people is really just, I mean, working with a team and having a plan. I mean, NASA is all about planning. They have a particular app that they use that has a red line. Everybody's uh, tasks are actually listed in the software app that you have on your your phone. And they do have internet under the water because the cable's under, so you have access to this. And it's like a real time, like chart and organization of all the tasks that you have to do. And it's amazing how you're elevated when you're pressured by this red line, uh, moving across, you know, chronologically, and you got to get your tasks done because if you don't, for example, the first task that I had to do was do use a mini DNA analyzer and sequencer to yeah, sequence yeah. the microbiome of the habitat. <laughs> and my mini DNA analyzer broke. So they had to ship another one down to me. And I had 58 pages of instructions on how to use it. So I'm already behind. I had like four hours to do this. And I'm already like one or two hours behind. They had to ship another. They had to do- have a diver come down and give me another one. So I'm already behind. And then Shell Lindgren, who is our my commander, a NASA astronaut, also a medical doctor, was following right up on me. So I was delaying his experiments coming after me. So that immediately put me into a high level of stress. Yeah, And I'm measuring my hormone levels and also my cortisol. And I do this routinely because, you know, I like to, you know, measure my hormones and things like that. And my cortisol is always like on the low end of normal. And during this mission, during this particular, that first day, it was like three or four times higher and even elevated the next day. Yeah, it, it, It just goes to show you that if you're prepared for that, like NASA astronauts are prepared, so they just calmly go into it and they they execute. They call it. And That's a great even, phrase. Like a, they yeah, don't even have like good. a yeah a stress response to that, you know, because wow. they're trained for that. Whereas I'm, you know, I was less trained for a major malfunction like that. My I was very concerned that I was delaying everybody else's experiments um and i was thinking maybe i broke this thing maybe i turned it on in a different sequence of things and a lot of things were running through my head but uh, but yeah I, I just think uh you know there's a lot of psychological things that you you garner from from working with this team and they call it my wife calls it she's an expert in this team cognition yeah. so how groups of teams work together there's researchers that study this and they actually will capture all the audio of teams communicating and working together. And even like the tones of voice and like the phrases that they use can all be put into algorithms to, to determine the cognitive and physiological and, you know, psychological state of the team. And then that gives like an index to, like a team cognition index. And if you can gather this information and it goes back to knowledgeable people, they could determine if the team is starting to break apart, you know, mentally and and then they can give, you know, kind of course correct as you go. So it's a lot of science that's above my, even though I'm a neuroscientist, I'm not a behavioral neuroscientist like my wife and some of the experts on this team. But uh, it's pretty interesting how you can mine the data in different ways to really and then give actionable feedback to the team and this is done in special operations community too in the military uh so it's it's highly relevant to the other area of research that i do which is uh, office of navy research 
uh, on, you know, I'm in the warfighter performance department. That That's so a has high, pretty high relevant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the 34. So it's like, yeah, I've been funded uh, working with them for over 20 years wow. on different things. Like uh, basically ways to detect oxygen toxicity or different how our physio- physiology changes in extreme environments and then be able to mitigate and enhance safety, performance, and resilience in those environments. But it has direct correlations with NASA. We've even had blue sky missions where we bring NASA program managers and then Navy program managers together because there's so much overlap. Actually, it was that blue sky mission that I got. I met the uh, Bill Todd, who actually runs NASA Nemo, and I got the invitation through some of these meetings that brought the Navy and NASA together so they can learn from each other. So, yeah, I think it's it's really important to not put yourself into silos and for organizations to work together because there's a lot of overlap in the knowledge that you can garner from, from different things. Absolutely. And I think it says a lot about them, the fact that they're open to kind of learning from, from different, uh, obviously yeah. very kind of high-level people, but, but different different areas of expertise and and yeah as you said it's kind of unprecedented and you know when you're in a submarine and you're living under the water for months in a confined habitat uh now a submarine is at one atmosphere so it's not like an extreme environment like we lived in a pressurized habitat under the water but uh from a psychological standpoint from a team cognition standpoint you know what the navy does when putting guys into like submarines and stuff and the operational procedures there's high relevance to you know uh iss the international space station or a deep sea space mission where you're sending guys in a confined habitat for months or years you know high high relevance high amount of overlap in the type of research that you could do there absolutely and i think also overlap in in terms of some of the things you were talking about functioning at a high level for long periods yes. without these sort of ebbs and flows and concentration and swings in energy and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, you know, yeah. the the potential applicability of something like ketosis or, or exogenous ketones and and that sort of thing. So exactly. Yep. That that's that's fascinating stuff. Um I I've never spoken to it's is it aquino- an aquanaut? Is that the phrase? Yeah, an aquanaut is a term used for people who have been underwater for more than 24 hours. And so that's you, right? Yeah, we were. Yeah. I was down for 10 days uh, underwater, and it was very like intense 10 days where you do so much research within that 10 days worth of time. Uh, yeah, so the first 24 hours, you become an aquanaut. I have like some kind of aquanaut certification. And then yeah. to, to be an aquanaut, uh, to work in that environment, you have to use uh, like a uh specialized equipment it's not like you don't you know it's not you're you're not breathing through a regulator you have a helmet uh super light helmet one of the best you know helmets for training that and then you have communications too so uh so the helmet has you know communication so you're communicating with the other people that you're diving with so you have that level and but you're also communicating with mission control who's giving you directions on various procedures to do. For example, we would go out to special, like different types of coral that were endangered. I think Sidorastria, like I had, to, and a couple other different types of coral where I would have to drill in and get a sample of the coral and bring it back. And then you do like a genetic ID of the coral 
And then you also take samples of the coral and then you put it on different cards. And then you take the cards out to like a coral nursery so you can propagate that. Uh, and this is a coral reef project. So some of the things they task us with different procedures to do where we go out, like on Mars, you would go out and find a rock, right? And you would bring it back and analyze it. So what we had to do, uh, I mean, there's rocks undersea, but we would take coral. And then our missions were to like, you know, bring that back, idea, and then put it, develop these nurseries where you can propagate this endangered species of coral. So you're actually doing, it's not just like NASA training and testing procedures. You're actually working with different uh, foundations and organizations to do like environmental work to, you know, vet out and test, you know, various technologies that are new. Uh, and some of the technologies and equipment then go on to the space station and things that work and things fail. And then you get other devices for, for the next mission. That's that must be very rewarding, though, seeing this sort of it's a it's a pretty major contribution Then you know, it's pretty, uh, pretty cool to, yeah. to think about. As you said, all, all those sorts of um, you wouldn't necessarily think of, you know, you think about it being quite a discrete project, but the fact that it has all this kind of overarching impact and overarching other elements to it is uh, it's really interesting. Yeah, they partner with it. Well, there's a lot of people trying to get their their research product, their technology, and even foundations trying to get, you know, their uh, agenda, if you will, it's not the right term, but to get their, you know, their mission into the mission, really, yeah. and and it helps promote them, and it's great collaboration, and I think there's a lot of overlap that you could be living and working underwater or in space and actually do, and that's what they do on the ISS. Uh, you know, I'm working with Dr. Marshall Porterfield, who headed all the life sciences there, and a lot of what he did, a lot, a lot of what he funded in NASA was like very basic fundamental knowledge of biological systems in space. Like when you're in space, if you're in space on the space station and you're confined to a room and you're breathing, there's no convection in space because there's no gravity. So you will build a CO2 bubble and then you'll die. If you light a mat, if you light a uh, candle in space, like the candle has a characteristic flame. Be round, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you'll have the flame will be round and it'll su suck up all the oxygen and then it'll go out like you can't keep it. So you have to like there has to be like a laminar flow and specialized systems for, you know, the air and things like that. But that has major, major implications for human health, safety and performance that you're building the CO2 bubble. So there's no convection. So there's no convection, you build a, a heat plume, so the heat does not rise either. So the heat builds, but there's no heat that rises. This has major implications from a fundamental standpoint because the same thing happens on a nanoscopic scale at the level of the atom. So even in a fluid medium, there's lack of convection and heat, and that has major implications for some of the real sciencey stuff. I mean, I, we don't have time to go into it, but the lack of convection not only happens at the level of the candle, but it happens at the level of the atom. And that has major implications for mitochondrial function and oxidative stress and things that I study. So that's yeah. a big part of what I'm kind of researching now and, and developing different protocols and different 
experiments to understand what this lack of convection, the implications for that and how to study it. And because it's going to be extremely important for these long duration space. We don't think about like convection that we're sitting here and the heat is rising. That's not, that's why we're, we can breathe and the heat is carrying the CO2 and things like that. But uh, this does not happen in space. So you can, it has major safety implications and it's not talked about too much either. No, I can imagine. It should be, but it's like, it's probably one of the most important things in space along with something called uh, GCR radiation, galactic cosmic radiation, which is like charged particles that fly through you like little nano guns shooting right through your body. You don't feel it, but uh, it's breaking your DNA. You get double stranded nicks, so you get DNA mutations. So you're much more likely. The NASA does not talk about the radiation like they should, but going to Mars and back will undoubtedly make you astronomically more likely to get many types of cancers, all all types of cancer. So this is not talked about a lot, but it's part of very meetings and workshops uh like how do we how do we mitigate this how do we create shielding create biological countermeasures against space radiation so that's a big part of what i think about and what i do to basically enhance our body's ability to repair dna through uh enhancing epigenetic mechanisms and biological mechanisms that will enhance longevity enhance performance enhance our resilience against these extreme space environments. Could you tell me a little bit about about kind of ketosis, just just as a sort of two minute primer, and then sort of how it can actually help under these you know these extreme adverse conditions, and also you know people think of epilepsy and, and that sort of thing, which I know it it, mm-hmm. it does help with, but but also you know how it can help someone say. Like like you or like me, who who's trying to operate at high level cognitively and physically, and yeah. appreciate that's quite yeah. a long question. So kind of ketosis primer, and, and then you know the 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 way in which it can improve performance potentially. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I got interested in it because I was contracted to uh, develop a strategy to mitigate oxygen toxicity seizures, and I was like laser focused. I'm in a pharmacology and physiology department, so I was really like drug focused. Yeah. Um, but in looking at some of the work that was done in the military and with uh, Office of Navy Research, they uh, I saw that they were fasting rats for like 24 to 36 hours. And that was giving them a level of neuroprotection against oxygen toxicity seizures above and beyond what could be achieved with anti-epileptic drugs. So this was like maybe circa 2006 or seven. So that sparked my interest in fasting. And then later the ketogenic diet, and then later, a year after that, this idea of a ketogenic diet in a pill, which would be exogenous ketones, right? Uh, so so we did a variety of studies on all these things. And, uh, and the military at the time was not very interested in actually uh, putting you know, military guys into a fasting state or even the ketogenic diet. So I redirected a lot of my focus into developing various types of ketone molecules that could be ketone electrolyte salts, which is simply taking a ketone like beta-hydroxybutyrate or acetate and combining that with sodium, calcium, magnesium, potassium. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Like, uh, you know, there's an electrolyte supplement. I don't know if we can mention brands like uh, Element. Element. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Element's great. So I use uh, KetoStart, which is uh, ketones 
And it's beta-hydroxybutyrate bound with sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium. Actually, it's uh, elements, the same, the same elements, but the elements, the electrolytes are bound to the ketones. So when you consume this product, it's giving electrolytes and it's giving beta-hydroxybutyrate, which has uh, very remarkable properties from a metabolic standpoint, from a neuroprotection standpoint, uh, from an anti-cancer standpoint, from an epigenetic standpoint. My PhD student that's in the lab now, her entire PhD dissertation is looking at how beta-hydroxybutyrate enhances uh, epigenetic mechanisms that can be neuroprotective, that could increase neurogenesis, increase learning and memory. I mean, we apply this to uh, we apply this to genetic disorders. So yep. we're actually treating. We study Kabuki syndrome, uh, glycogen storage disorder type two, all sorts of yeah, Angelman syndrome, a wide variety of different things. Your the listeners may have not heard of. But uh, this all spawned off of research that was really directed towards like Navy SEALs to develop ketone esters, which are studying at Duke University now. They have an amazing human facility where we can put people inside chambers and then push them to extreme limits in ketosis and out of ketosis. And then, so the question is, at this point in time, what is the best way, and it's very context dependent, to achieve therapeutic ketosis? And the methods that I describe, which are fasting, ketogenic diets, uh, MCT oil too is something that could put you, yeah, and then exogenous ketones, there's esters and salts. They're not mutually exclusive, but when we study them, we have to study them in isolation. And now we're at the point now where we're like combining different things, like using, like you had mentioned, uh, a Mediterranean-based supplemented ketogenic diet is kind of what yeah. I do. Yeah. And uh, on, you know, maybe once or twice a week, I'll do intermittent fasting. If I do intermittent fasting too much, I lose weight. Uh, so I got really into it maybe years ago and I dropped, you know, probably 15, 20 pounds of unwanted weight. So I want to kind of maintain my weight. But if I wanted to lose weight, intermittent fasting is a great way to do it. Or you could periodically do it if you know you're going into a dive or going being uh, exposed to an extreme environment. Or perhaps if you're giving, you know, a big talk, like I feel more calm and, and focused if I'm in a state of fasting state, you know, yeah. state of fasting ketosis. So uh, actually, it works better if you don't use it all the time. So uh, I basically adhere to a particular diet, and then at certain points in time, I will fast, and that will, uh, you know, put my body into a state what I feel is optimized. But it's very context dependent, too. So there's different ways to do it. And then everybody's different on top of that. So there are different things that you can use to measure. And I have a wide variety of devices here behind me on uh, things that I have like continuous glucose monitors, various uh, wearables. It could be the Aura Ring. It could be like a Polar V800. So we use different technologies to basically monitor uh, biological variables to indicate uh, performance and performance resilience and how we can optimize different metabolites, uh, different blood gases, different, uh, you know, uh, breathing, heart rate variability, brain, brain function. And then we look at things like, you know, exogenous ketones uh, and, and what doses and protocols could be best applied to different conditions. And we also study cancer. We study other neurological diseases. 
diseases, not just extreme environments. One of the things that that I'd like to ask you about that I haven't heard you talk about that much is, so you mentioned about the benefits of, of intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. And that also kind of comes with some drawbacks, especially for, for you know, older people if they're concerned about sarcopenia, if they're concerned about, you know, losing yeah. muscle mass and that sort of thing. And I've heard you briefly, this is a <laughs> quite a long question, but briefly talk about ketosis and, and ketones being kind of protective in, in a certain way. I think it's something to do with the with the amino acid alanine and the way in which it can be anti-catabolic. So yes. potentially getting some of the benefits or a lot of the benefits of, of fasting, you know, the metabolic benefits and also the, you know, neuroprotective type benefits, whilst also hopefully preserving muscle mass and that sort of thing. Could you maybe, because I've only got like a very basic understanding of this sort of thing, so I may have yeah. misunderstood or, and no, obviously I don't know the, the mechanisms and stuff like you would. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're, you definitely have a, a good understanding, basic understanding is that the physiological countermeasure when you're in a fasted state, what your body does is that the, the main thing it's trying to, to, to really do and preserve is energy to the, the central nervous system. Yeah. Right. So, uh, there's a lot of major, massive changes in metabolic physiology that occur in a fasted state that is redirecting energy metabolites to preserve and maintain uh, brain blood flow, but also fuel supply to the central nervous system. That is the most important thing that your body, that the physiological changes uh, are doing. Yes. So that that's you, uh, during the first 24 hours, you basically break down and liberate all your glucose from liver glycogen. Yes. And, uh, then you start mobilizing stored fat for energy from your adipose tissue. Uh, Long-chain fatty acids that are stored in adipose tissue do not readily cross the blood-brain barrier. So they do go to the liver and through a breakdown, uh, through beta oxidation of fatty acids, you build up a lot of acetyl-CoA and then that gets uh, condensed to form water-soluble fat molecules that are ketone bodies, and these are beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. Yeah. They spill into circulation, and then they enter the blood supply, and then these smaller molecules can readily cross the blood-brain barrier. And then they, they become the predominant energy source that your brain is using. If your body did not break down and make ketones, you would actually there's a, a genetic condition that this happens, and if if you have this condition and you fast, you you pass out, you go into a seizure, and you die because your brain gets starved of energy. Uh, you can't make it lacks an enzyme through a process called ketogenesis. Yeah, right? uh, we are the vast majority of people are hardwired to naturally enter this state of of therapeutic ketosis, or just it's not even like an unnatural state. It's unnatural to suppress it by eating carbohydrates all the time. I think we. Yeah limited food availability and carbohydrate availability we transitioned in and out of ketosis all the time and i think it's it's pretty uh unnatural never to do that so i think it's it would be it would serve us good to, uh wisely to do that uh but ketones another primary role they have is anti-catabolic so by elevating the ketones then that prevents your body from 
mobilizing a lot of proteolytic enzymes that would rapidly break down your skeletal muscle and perhaps your cardiac muscle too to liberate the amino the gluconeogenic amino acids so if you didn't make ketones right so you would start breaking down muscle to liberate the glucose uh, from the amino acids to maintain brain energy metabolism and if we uh, did that, we would succumb to muscle wasting within like a week uh, or oh. sooner than that, especially if you have a fast metabolism. Yeah. Uh, and but even people that are not obese can fast for weeks. I mean, obese subjects, George Cahill and Oliver Owen published in 1967, you know, subjects were fasted and this was done at a university setting for 40 days. And there's a wonder how they wonder how they got to do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's well, it's remarkable research that can't really be replicated today, just because of ethical, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, your background in bioethics and things like that, right? So, uh, yeah, this unfortunately can't be done, even in like for laboratory animals, it would never allow it. From the IOCOC, the Institute for Animal Care and Use Committee, would never allow, you know, even fasting below. Even we can't fast animals for even more than twenty four hours. That's unheard of. Uh, university would not allow it. And and twenty four hours, but that's quite a long time for for a mouse or a rat, right? In, in, a mouse, in that's the, right. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah twenty four hours fasting in a mouse is equivalent, approximately, to about five days for oh, human. Wow, that so, much. Yeah, uh, yeah, five to even seven days. Uh, yeah, it, it's the the equivalents are kind of debated, but it depends on the mouse yeah. strain and. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, you uh, a mouse if a mouse loses more than twenty percent of its body weight. Uh, it will die. It doesn't really have a lot of fat. Like humans are, are definitely have more fat. So yep. uh, like a baby is born basically like obese, right? A baby has a lot of fat. So yeah. uh, that that serves a tremendous survival advantage. And our ability to, Dr. George Cahill wrote extensively about this in Starvation, uh, that our ability to get into ketosis and for ketones to supply brain energy is probably one of the most remarkable and important evolutionary advantages to our survival because not a lot of we just our brain sucks up 25 percent of the energy you know yeah. at rest so if we don't have that fuel flow we're going to not be able to maintain cognitive function reaction time and awareness to actually get resources for survival so in a fasted state our physiology is actually hardwired to be more aware more alert our sympathetic nervous system is activated our our you know cortisol which is actually favorable can help mobilize fuel sources is increased and that increases our ability to actually have the cognitive and physical uh function to more efficiently collect resources in a fasted state. A lot of people will talk about feeling good fasted uh, and then critics of fasting uh, and, and even ketosis will say, well, doesn't that elevate cortisol, which which can be good and can be bad. And obviously chronically elevated cortisol all the time isn't isn't great from what I understand. But mm-hmm. what are the sort of, and I appreciate this is, this is a complex probably issue that, that's multifactorial, but what, what are the sort of interactions there with, with cortisol? And is it as sort of negative as, as people would, would make it out to be and say, oh, you can't fast because you, you know, you'll skyrocket cortisol and you'll cause yourself all these problems? Yeah. Uh, you know what? I mean, just before I got, I jumped on here, I was pulling some of my blood work because I have to give a talk uh, in Europe, uh, 
this weekend and I was just thinking about, you know, showing some personal data. Uh, and I was looking actually through my cortisol measurements. And my, my cortisol is consistently low on the low end of normal to normal. Uh, although in particular situations like the NASA Nemo mission, it was spiked, you know, uh, through but that you were under of a psychological. Yeah. yeah. But I guess the point is that physiologically, I was doing intermittent fasting and ketosis, and I was looking through my cortisol measurements. And for me, it was normal. But I do think, I mean, getting to the root of this question, if you're following a high carb diet and then you rapidly transition into ketosis, uh, I don't have data to when I did the transition. So my cortisol may have been elevated over time, but then I don't like the term new normal, but I think, you know, once you are keto adapted, then that becomes the new normal for you. And then your cortisol and everything, your homeostatic mechanisms come into play. And I think for me, once my body became adjusted to basically functioning on lower levels of insulin and lower glycemic variability, I think my cortisol actually got normalized in a way that stayed uh, the baseline level was lower because I had measured it years ago when I was not on a ketogenic diet. And, you know, it was like high end of normal. And then I measured it a lot for, we were vetting out different labs because we wanted to choose the right lab, uh, for the research. So I ended up doing like dozens of cortisol measurements for different, different labs and different, different things. And then, you know, just come to realize I just have like a lower state of cortisol, uh, it, it's high in the morning as it should be. And then tapers off, yeah. you know, I have the nice, yeah. nice cortisol response. But uh, but I think the point is that people will argue this, and it, I mean, I get I get these emails a lot. It's it, this has this conversation inspired me. I'm going to do a post today oh, <laughs> on great. Instagram. You had mentioned, you know, that uh, h- here's my cortisol measurements, and, and because I get a lot of a lot of questions, a lot of emails about this, so it is, and it can be an important topic for some people who. Uh, my wife tends to have high levels of cortisol, but she does not follow a ketogenic diet. <laughs> so this right. is something that she's trying to get a handle on, but the rest of it, her blood work looks remarkably great. And she eats relatively higher sugar, higher carb, you know, to me, pretty standard, like, you know, American macronutrients, but she just does well off higher carbs. Uh, but her cortisol trends really high. Her baseline cortisol does, but everything else looks really good. Uh, so I think it's a very, my point is it's, it's like a personal thing. And I think, uh, cortisol levels will probably rise initially with carbohydrate restriction, especially ketogenic, but I think they will normalize through keto adaptation when you have the physiological metabolic adaptation. And I mean, that, that makes, yeah, that kind of intuitively makes sense. So, and again, I don't want to kind of, uh, put words in your mouth, but potentially i mean any kind of dramatic change will increase cortisol right so yeah would there yeah. be an argument for like tapering to say you're on 400 grams of carbs taper down to like a 100 and then to 50 and then or you know whatever if you tapered it you might mitigate that yeah and you know a rise in cortisol is a favorable adaptation the problem with cortisol is chronically elevated cortisol that continues to stay elevated in the latter part of the day. Yeah. Like, so if you do like, you know, we would measure cortisol four times and if it's elevated like at eight o'clock at night, that's not good. So you want to see the nice spike in at in the morning yeah. and that quick uh, high elevation of cortisol in the morning is very favorable and yeah. you want that, you know, that gets your body, that Absolutely. sets you up yeah. nicely for the rest of the day. Uh, yeah. So... 
yeah, to get, you need to like measure it at different time points. Salivary, I've done saliva and also blood. And I kind of like saliva. I got some of my best data, I think, on saliva. And I've compared it to blood. It's pretty comparable. But uh, but a simple saliva cortisol kit, doing that a couple of times, will give you a handle on yeah. that. And, and then there are supplements that you can use too, uh, if you tend to just be a high cortisol uh <laughs> producer uh because yeah, i've communicated with a lot of people over the years where this this has been a problem for them uh but it's usually females i've never really had a male uh where it was a problem that it didn't self-correct itself is, is there some kind of i mean again I, i'm asking you to speculate here when you may not have yeah. data, but something relating to testosterone you know where i'm going with like testosterone yeah. versus estrogen type dominance mm -hmm. there or i i don't know i mean uh, yeah well, I mean, I, I mentioned my wife, you know, tends to have higher cortisol and she's on a more of a carbohydrate based diet. Uh, but I've communicated with a lot of females that have high cortisol. And I, my thoughts on that is that the female physiology is kind of hyper reactive to uh, carbohydrate restriction in a way where they will overproduce cortisol to make up for it. And they may not have the robust ketone metabolism or fat metabolism that males have uh not always the case but it just seems that it's it's more of the case that there's uh unfavorable metabolic and hormonal changes in females at least on paper yeah that, especially during the initial uh you know shift to ketosis with, in yeah some which females may or may not fade over time yeah. I guess. yeah and then i mean and some blood work in female i think it's beautiful i mean it's low cortisol it's corrected their hormones uh especially if they have polycystic ovary syndrome or pcos and then it's been remarkably favorable in every way uh but and then again some some females so that's why you really do have to test i'm a big advocate for knowing what your baseline is and then if, if you make changes to your diet or training or supplements or whatever to be able to monitor those changes longitudinally yeah. over time yeah it's super important a lot of people don't do that i mean it's, it's obvious but a lot of people don't do that if you were able to control it uh, and you know you, you could set your own schedule and all that sort of stuff how would you kind of set things up and how, how do you kind of set things up in terms of training and, and nutrition and, and lifestyle you know sleep etc yeah so my schedule is highly variable like uh you yeah. know, I just came back from Singapore, so it's like 1 a.m. in the morning for me. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then, so I'm kind of like, in these cases, that's where like I'll run on ketones. I did have breakfast this morning, so I'm not like intermittent fasting now. Uh, I had uh, eight eggs, and four yolks, and then I gave two yolks each to my dog. And then I had maybe a little bit of turkey on the side. So that was my breakfast uh, and maybe a little more coffee than normal because my circadian is a little bit flipped. But um but generally speaking, you know, I, I wake up and I do, uh, I, for me, the, the most important thing to do first thing in the morning is to get outside in the sun. And so I wake up, I get like coffee started, I, you know, check the dogs and I grab, get our dogs and I go out and I walk the property in the sun with the sun coming up, usually about seven o'clock and it's just coming up over the horizon and barefoot, my feet are in the wet grass. I let the cows out. We live on a farm and uh and it's like that tactile you know it's just the smells the sun and things like that and that kind of gets the cortisol spike and i've even like measured my cortisol 
you know, wow. spike during the, so I, I know what happens to my heart. And, but conversely, if I don't do that and I'm thrown way off, if I'm traveling, I feel like I'm okay. Like I'm surprisingly okay. And I don't obsess about it or become so much neurotic about it. But I think if you can just try to get out, get natural light, if you can, uh, if you can't get natural light, get a bright artificial lights, you know, the lights in, you know, typical office or something like that. Well, yeah, I see you have a lot of windows. I mean, that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, actually, my office here at this location today, I'm not always here, but it's not my typical like podcast location, but uh, has no windows or whatever. But I was outside kind of all morning. Uh, but I get like uh, protein and fat throughout the day. And then at dinner time, it's like protein and fibrous carbohydrates, usually like uh, a salad veggies and then maybe i'll snack a little bit in the afternoon uh at nighttime we always do like some kind of heat therapy like we have a hot tub at the house or uh it was an old like spa that i got operational big concrete structure uh and we do that every night and i set it to like 105 and i do that for 15 minutes and that has remarkable changes on uh my sleep Uh, i do have a juve elite system which is an infrared sauna and also like a red light thing and i use that uh if i'm traveling obviously over the last week or so i didn't use it but uh i will use that a couple times a week and i think that's that's something that i've leveraged and i think it's important but uh but really just you know carbohydrate restriction throughout the day ensuring that my protein is about 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram uh for me so that's about you know some days 200 grams of protein a day i mean some days it could be as high like on the weekends 300 grams of protein you know especially if i'm training sometimes yep. i get so busy during the week that i uh i front load my tr- my training <laughs> over the weekend yeah i know i'm gonna have like a busy week which i'll do this weekend because i'll be off to europe and not sure i'll train at all for like two weeks so uh so yeah i just and learn to uh, to be flexible, and I think that's important too. I think that's also, you know, a, an important lesson that even though you know you, you know all about the biomarkers and and you have this incredibly deep understanding, not being totally neurotic about it and not kind of yeah. obsessing over it probably helps. And and that probably you know uh, I know it might reduce your cortisol by you know just stressing a bit less and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, like this is like my notebook. You know, I plan everything out, but I have things that are starred that like need to be done. But it's I keep it very simple. Like, uh, you know, I have training today. I will train today, and I know exactly. I don't have to think about stress about well, what, how much weight will I put on the bar or something. Like, I wrote it down. Like, I know what I'm going to do. I know the amount of reps and sets. So, a lot of stress that people have is thinking about what to do when. Yep. And I think one of the things that I do when I wake up, a lot of times I'll wake up, I'll walk the property, my wife will still be sleeping, but then I'll do the red light. And then with the red light, I keep my notebook and then I plan my day. And then, you know, that's, um, then I typically have breakfast uh, for quite a year or two. I didn't have any breakfast. I would eat only like till noon. And to be honest, I feel sharper when I do that. And if I do have a, a task that involves a lot of cognitive processing uh or like you know i just had 23 hours of flights coming here and i feel like a little bit my energy levels are low and stuff uh i will fast just because it makes me more resilient i feel less likely to get sick too uh but i give my body 
I transition out of that very carefully. I don't like, <laughs> you know, pay out. So I pull the fasting lever under certain periods in time where I know my body's under stress. And, um, and during the normal course of the week, what's really important for me to keep my stress down and keep my productivity high is keeping uh, like a tactile handwritten notebook that I will refer to periodically throughout the day, but I'll have some flexibility with it. I won't be sort of dead set on having to achieve this, but the yeah. things that are scarred, I'll want to, you know, I'll want to get those done. That, that makes a lot of sense, that yeah. sort of prioritizing certain tasks. And, and it also goes back, ties in nicely with all the, you know, stuff you're talking about with, with NASA and having a plan and, you know, how yeah. that that's such a useful tool. Um, yeah. So very briefly, the the training, can you can you kind of talk to me a little bit? You mentioned you do you have a farm, so you do a lot of manual labor, um, yeah. which obviously mm-hmm. counts as training, will maintain a lot of muscle. You know, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be good for you for all from all sorts of perspectives. Um yeah. and it, are there any kind of people will always want me to ask about supplements. So you mentioned exogenous ketones and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I'm assuming I've heard you talk about things like creatine and you mentioned coffee and caffeine and yeah it's, yeah like what else anything else i should sort of uh i eat a lot of fish but if you don't like fish uh bha and epa are really okay. important you know uh i think for brain health and brain health optimization yeah uh on the ketogenic diet i do get carnitine so i have a powder that i mix up and it has carnitine acetyl carnitine uh it has uh creatine monohydrate and uh, you know just like the basic things i'm thinking sometimes yeah. i'll use beta alanine but i don't like the tingles that it kind of gives me yeah. uh, the supplement beta alanine so i transition in and out of that but i i don't really if you look into my my cabinets it looks like i have a lot of supplements because people send me a lot but yeah. uh Magnesium is something I use like at night, especially I'm trying to reset my circadian before I go off to another time zone again. So when I got back, I took like 10 milligrams of magnesium or uh, no, 10 milligrams of melatonin. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, a high, higher dose of magnesium to, to transit. I also used some kava last night, like a kava tea. Uh, oh, and also ashwagandha. Okay. Uh, yeah, I yeah. use yeah. I start using that under, but I don't use it all the time because I think these things have less of a benefit if you know if you use them all the time. So I use them if my body's under stress from changing rapid you know, time zones or yeah. not sleeping for three days, which just happened. Uh, so I pull the trigger on that you know periodically yeah. and use them when they'll be most efficacious. Um, Makes a lot of sense. Else. Just sort yeah. of cycling. Well, there aren't that many supplements that have a you know genuine good basis for for, for you know being to, as you said like yeah. caffeine, creatine, beta alanine, um, and stimulants too. So I I yeah. will use stimulants on occasion. Uh, some of the things that I've used in the past, but I use them very sparingly. Like I don't use Adderall or those things, but like ephedrine is something that I've used in the past, like ephedrine pseudofed or something like that uh, for. Like very periodically, like if if I'm trying to reset my circadian, I'll get some coffee and like ephedrine in the morning and I'll do that. But I won't, you know, use that like maybe once a month or every two months or something like that. Yep. If I really so the, the protocol is basically like a high level of stimulation in the morning, cortisol, dopamine, things like that. And then yep. I'm more likely to crash 
and be able to fall asleep at a time that's bedtime for me but since i'm coming from another time zone it could be like morning there so yeah i'm trying to kind of reset so i can have a productive day the next day so i sparingly use different things thank you for listening to the unfiltered podcast if you've got this far i hope you won't mind if i ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance we'd really appreciate it And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.